Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Good morning and welcome those of you joining us from Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you join us as well. Well, let me ask, are you recovered from Thanksgiving yet? Or are you still recovering and you're hoping to take a nap during the next portion of the service? Uh, I hope that's not the case, but we're glad that you're here. We did finish 1 John last week, and there are a couple of small letters that follow that. In fact, they're the two smallest books in the entire Bible. There are a couple of other one-chapter books, but these are the two smallest letters. Very creative titles, 2 John and 3 John. Uh, That's not because they were sent to John, that's because that John wrote them, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Well, this morning, even though we spent 11 weeks working our way through 1 John, and some of you may be tired of it by now, some of you may be sorry it's over, I do need to do a little bit of a review because the author of 2 and 3 John assumed that his readers understood and had read 1 John. And so we've got to do a little bit of exploration, a little bit of review to help us understand that. Now, when I say exploration, I'm immediately thinking about impact. We're calling this series Impact primarily because we have two values, connect and impact. And here's how those two weave together to give us kind of our mission or our marching orders. It goes like this. As we connect with God and are impacted by God, he then sends us to connect and impact others with the gospel. Now, all of those parts of that statement are absolutely essential. God is the source of everything good that happens. The gospel is ultimately sourced in God. And when we connect with God, we experience all that God has for us, and it grows and grows and grows. And then, God, that's not the end. God says, now, I want you to be my delivery system. I want you to go and connect with other people and impact them with the same realities with which I have impacted you. So that's kind of what we've been doing in 1 John. Now, what um, we need to explain about 1 John, just by way of review, I know some of you did your homework. I'm going to ask you next week if you finished it. So if you haven't, five times read 1 John. Memorize your five verses, kind of the five by five. We'll do a little review next week. But let me remind you a little bit of the exploration. All right, 1 John has a purpose. And one of the really neat things about John Usually when he writes a letter, when he writes the book, like the Gospel of John, he tells us why he wrote it. And so that was one of the memory verses. It goes like this. I write these things to you. See, here's why I'm writing to you. So that you, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, you'll know that you have life in his name. You'll be assured of those truths. Do you ever have doubts? Do you ever doubt whether God can and does accept you? Do you ever doubt that the things you hear in church, learn in small group, kind of live out in your life, do you ever wonder if those really are true? Well, then 1 John's for you. Now, the really strange thing, or one of the strange things about 1 John, is that it's not linear in order. I know some of you engineers and some of you accountants, you like things linear. You like it to go move from A to B to C. Well, you must hate the structure of 1 John. 1 John isn't like a linear presentation 1 John is like a spiral staircase. Remember I said that to you numerous times. When you walk around a spiral, think about walking, you ever walk up, um, you know, a lighthouse. You walk around, you see the same window, but you see it from different heights. You see the same thing on the wall, the same messed up bricks. But you always see them from a slightly different vantage point. That's what 1 John's like. When you read 1 John, you scratch your head and say, didn't I just read this? 
I, I just, I said, I, it was a little different, kind of worded differently, but it sounds the same. He's doing that on purpose. He wants to take those realities and drive them into our heads and our hearts so that those realities make a difference in our lives. Now, there are three themes that come up in 1 John over and over and over again as you walk around the staircase, and by now these should be really old to you, at least I'm hoping they're old. They are truth, life, and love. And here's what it means. As you connect with God and are impacted by him, you will grow in your understanding of truth. Now, not just true truth, all things that are true, truth primarily about Jesus. You will grow and be growing in your understanding of the truth about Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. And we said the whole first chapter of 1 John is about the incarnation and substitution. Who is Jesus? He's God in flesh. What did he come to do? To be our substitute, take our place. That's the truth that you're growing in. And that isn't like a stepping stone. You step on that and move on to important things. No, we grow more deeply into those things. We sink our roots more deeply into that truth. But that truth doesn't just stay in our heads. That truth then gets permeated through our lives and we live out that truth. And the themes that manifested themselves in Jesus' life begin to be true of us. Themes of grace and forgiveness and mercy, themes of courage and faithfulness and dependability. Those themes begin to be true of us in our lives. And one of the realities that sets us apart from all other people is we love one another. Not love in order to get, but love to give. In fact, the one difference that, make, that Christianity makes Christianity different from all other belief systems is we don't love in order to get. We love because we've already gotten. God has loved us and lavished all this stuff on us so that our lives are kind of filled to overflowing. We then love others because God loved us. We're passing that love on. So those are the three themes. And here's how John says it. If you have doubts, if you wonder if you've been accepted by God, if you wonder if you're really forgiven, if you wonder, does your life really matter? You wonder whether God can really tolerate you or not? Look for these three evidences. Are you growing in your understanding of the truth of who Jesus is? Are you living to a greater degree the themes of the gospel? And are you loving one another in a progressively positive way? That's how we can know. It's not checking boxes on a theology test. It's not being able to argue the Bible and win debates. It's whether you're believing the truth, whether you're living the themes of the gospel, and whether you're loving one another. That is where our assurance is found that God has impacted us. Well, that's where we've been, but that's not where we're going this morning. This morning, we're going to look at 2 John, and it's kind of interesting that 2 and 3 John are really applications. They're applications of the themes of 1 John. So 1 John explores what it means to be impacted by God. 2 and 3 John then apply those principles. What does it look like where the rubber meets the road? How do those principles, themes, get lived out? Now, a couple of things you may need to know about 2 and 3 John. I already mentioned one. Two shortest books of the Bible, but that doesn't mean that they're unimportant. Uh, not just that, John wrote them to churches that were experiencing difficulty and problem. And we'll talk about that a little bit. 
Also, they're probably the two best examples we have in the Bible of what first century letter writing was like. Now, a little different than letter writing today. Well, we don't write letters anymore. We send emails. In fact, interestingly, first century letters resemble our email a whole lot more than regular letter writing does. So here's the format. Sender, recipient, greeting, content, salutation. That's how all letters worked in the first century. And sometimes it gets them a little mixed up because some of the New Testament letters are really long, but you'll be able to follow it in 2 John real easily. Sender, recipient, greeting, content, salutation, the end. All right, so with that in mind, let's read through 2 John. If you have your Bibles, your phone, iPad, whatever you want to use. And as I read, see if you can pick out those parts from this first century letter. So here's what John writes. The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And such person is the dece- any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister who is chosen by God send their greetings. And that's pretty uh, short, succinct letter. Do you notice the parts as we read through? What's the problem? Interestingly, 2nd and 3rd John both address the same problem. Uh, They address it from different sides. We'll talk about 3rd John next week. But here's the problem. There were no hotels or motels in the first century. No Airbnb, no Verbo, nothing. No Wawa, no Burger King, McDonald's, your favorite restaurant, none of that. Which meant travelers required hospitality. If you were traveling from place to place, you couldn't stop and, you know, pull your RV over somewhere. You depended on people taking you into their house and feeding you. They protected you and provided for you. And if not, they were not showing hospitality. And that was a cultural problem back then. 
So traveling teachers, traveling missionaries, people just going from place to place, going, going to celebrate Thanksgiving with the family. Well, you got to stay with somebody. You can't go to the hotel. You can't stop at a fast food place or a restaurant. You depended on hospitality. Hospitality then becomes a Christian virtue, especially. So all the cultures really demanded hospitality. Christians ratcheted that up a bit and they said, we really have to be hospitable. We have to provide for people. We have to protect them. We have to care for them. And you see that over and over again in the gospels. Here's a problem. What if your guests start taking advantage of you? I mean, you've heard the expression, guests are like fish. After three days, they stink. Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, what if these traveling people come and like think they move in? Like they've been there two days, three days. It's beyond stinking at this point. They're, they're there for a couple of weeks and they're not leaving. They're eating your food. They're hanging out. They're, they have, they're controlling the remote at night. Uh, they're using all the Wi-Fi. You can't get on, not enough bandwidth. I mean, it's making your life miserable, right? Oh yeah, worse than that. Suppose they're lazy bums. I mean, you get up and go to work, right? They sleep in. They just kind of lounge around the pool, hang out. They do nothing. They're eating your food. They're sleeping in your house. They're expecting and demanding all this hospitality, and they're doing absolutely nothing. What are you supposed to do? Well, we've got to be hospitable. We've got to show love to one another. Therefore, we, we have to let them hang in there, right? Oh, yeah, worse than that. Suppose when they do go out, they're teaching error. Suppose they're spreading a gospel that's not a gospel. Suppose they're telling people things that don't line up with the truth of the gospel. Suppose the life they're living isn't matching the themes of the gospel. Suppose they're not loving one another, but they're taking advantage of one another. Suppose they're asking people in the town to sign loans for them. Suppose they're taking offerings, but rather than putting it to positive use, they're spending it on themselves. Suppose they're not living and teaching a message that lines up with the gospel. Suppose their message is contrary to that, and the life they're living and what they're calling people to do is completely contrary to what God wants them to do. What are we supposed to do? That's the problem. Both 2 John and 1 John address that problem. And that's where verse 10 kind of comes in. So here's, what, here's kind of the content, right? If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the gospel teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them participates, shares in their wicked work. Huh. That doesn't seem very hospitable, right? Now, now, let me clear up a couple of things right away. John is not saying, be nasty and cruel to these people. John's not saying, slander them. John's not saying, if they're dying of thirst, don't give them a drink. John is saying, don't allow your house to be a base of operations for spreading this false message. Don't take them to the church and allow them to influence the people in the congregation. Don't support and encourage the spreading of this message that is contrary to the message that Jesus gave. That's what he's saying. Remember, no hotels, no motels, no fast food, no restaurants. Don't allow your home to be a base of operation for a gospel that's not the gospel. That's what John is saying. Be nice, love one another, 
But sometimes correction is involved in love, isn't it? It isn't just go along and agree with everything they say. Speak the truth. Show them love. But love often involves correction. Well, now that we know the basic problem, who are the people? Did you notice when I read the letter, we kind of get the author and the you know, recipient, writer and recipient, right up front. And who would think in such a short letter, we're not even finished verse one, and we have two problems. Who the heck is the elder? And who the heck is the elect lady? Well, now I kept referring to him as John, but the author doesn't say, I, John, the elder. He just begins, the el- well, who is the elder? Now, again, tradition kind of tells us it's John, but who's the elder? Well, the word elder just means old. I'm not allowed to say old or I, I slip. I, I'm supposed to say elderly. You know what elderly means? Old. If you're elderly, you're old. I can say that because I'm getting there quickly, and I know that because people now call me sir. <laughs> kind of look around, who, who the heck is, oh, sir. Oh, you mean me, right? Uh, elder, right? Somebody who's old. Now, Paul takes that word elder, and he uses it to kind of designate some positions in a church. And so as you read through Paul's letters, he travels around, and when he establishes a church, he appoints elders in the church. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he finds like the oldest people around and says, why don't you guys run the church? No, elder means mature. Maturity hopefully comes with wisdom, right? Wisdom doesn't have to go with age, but often wisdom does go with age. You want people that are wise and mature, kind of over churches. And so it means an office in the church where those that are the adults are kind of running things, right? But this is a little different. The author doesn't begin by saying, I'm an elder in one of, he says the elder. Like, who does he think he is? Like saying the elder, not an elder, the elder. Um, Something's going on that allows us to think about the author a little bit. Now, you may remember from 1 John, I said, by the time these letters get written, all of the apostles are now dead, except John, the apostle. He's the only one still alive. So it would make sense for him to say, the elder, right, the one with authority. The other elders only had authority over a local congregation. Here, this elder seemingly thinks he has authority over lots of congregations, not because of anything in him, but because of who he was with and kind of the mission he's been given. And so it seems most likely that this is John the Apostle, and he is writing as an old man to communicate to one of the local churches experiencing the big problem of traveling teachers and how do I settle hospitality, but also standing for truth and love? How do I do that? John the Apostle writes the letter. Well, that's one people problem. Here's the next one. Who's this elect lady? Who's the chosen lady? Is it a lady, an individual, and her kids? Or is it a local church and the congregants. Well, for a lot of reasons I won't get into here, I kind of think John is writing to a church. 
The Greek word for church is feminine. Therefore, you would expect a lady to be the metaphor for a church, right? And so here's John the apostle, the old, wise, only remaining original disciple, writing to a church, experiencing a big problem of balancing hospitality and truth. How do they do it? John writes to this church and tells them how to handle the situation. Well, what are the priorities? Like, what are the things that John mentions? Well, he actually mentions two priorities. And they shouldn't be old to you now. The two priorities are truth and love. Do you notice that? He's writing about truth and love. Trains need two tracks to run on. Christianity has two tracks to run on, truth and love. If we only had truth, you know, we could become kind of crotchety and mean, judgmental, critical, and just kind of veer off away from the gospel. Love is the other track. But if all we had is love, we would ne never want to say anything to hurt anybody's feelings. We'd run off into that. We need two tracks. Two tracks to run on, truth and love. Those tracks keep us centered. Those are the two tracks that Jesus not only laid down, they're the tracks that Jesus lived. I know some of you are thinking, the Disney monorail only has one track. Yeah, but it has two sets of wheels, one on each side of the track that keeps it balanced. You need two tracks or you're going to veer off into the field. Interestingly, those two tracks aren't new. Like John's not making them up. In fact, I have the sneaking suspicion. When he wrote 1 John, when he wrote 2 John, 3 John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, when he wrote Revelation, I kind of think he was remembering Jesus and the night before the crucifixion. Because that night before Jesus was executed, he says two things. Now, I don't know if to tell you, you know, kind of someone's last words are probably pretty important unless they're really in pain and say mean things and weird things. And, but Here's Jesus, and what does he say? Well, here's one thing he says in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty important, right? Notice that whole statement right before the crucifixion is all about truth, right? And Jesus says, Hey, if you don't believe me, who I am and what I did, you can't come to the Father. I'm the only door. That, that's the truth. But that same night, he also spoke of the other track. By this, he's, now, here, here, he's given kind of a commission to his followers, right? By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you condemn and judge people. No, no, no. He doesn't say people will know you're my disciples if you condemn them, judge them, criticize them. He says, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Both of, those, both of the rails, Jesus mentions the night before he was crucified, not just truths he mentions, themes he lived, commission he gives for us to then live, to believe and live out. The two rails, truth and love. I don't have to tell you, uh, 
Both of those are in kind of short supply today, don't you think? Today we hear a lot about, well, my truth and your truth and what's true truth. And somehow the truth gets missed and obliterated and all that. And love, you know, even among brothers and sisters, you don't have to read too many social media posts. Or, yeah, love's kind of in short supply too. Even, even among people that go to church and call each other family. We could stand head and shoulders above a world, not to draw attention to ourselves, but stand above people believing the truth, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, and demonstrating love to those around us. The canvas is really dark behind us, which means anything we could do to light up with truth and love against that backdrop would really shine brightly. We've got a great opportunity. And what better time of year between Thanksgiving and Christmas celebrating who Jesus is and what he came to do. Let's live the themes of truth and love. Let's, let's run on both tracks this year. I saw an, an interesting chart a couple of weeks ago, so I figured I'll, I'll show it to you. It was all about mathematical mistakes. Now, again, I, I used to teach math, and I was like staying a page or two ahead of the rest of the class. <laughs> uh, mathematical. But he, here's, here's what the author of the chart was saying. He's saying, you know what? If you just take the four basic mathematical you know, functions, addition, subtraction, division, multiplication, if you take those four, you can understand how we should be living, viewing, and loving in the truth. Here's what he said. The first mistake we can make is addition. Well, what are we going to add? Well, here's a mistake you can make. You add sources of authority to the Bible. So now we got the Bible plus this guy's interpretation. The Bible plus this other book. The Bible plus my little pet hobby horse. The Bible plus when you add other sources of authority to the authority of Scripture, you're now setting yourself up for you're opening the door to a whole host of problems that can come. I mean, there's no limit to what you what can happen then. How about subtraction? A problem subtracting from Jesus. Subtracting from who he is and what he did. Um, in John's day, the subtraction problem was some of the churches were teaching that Jesus did not become a human being. Jesus was, you know, kind of like God, immaterial, never took on a body. Well, wait, no, no, no. You're subtracting from who Jesus really is. That, that, so is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus human? Yes. Did Jesus come as our substitute? Yeah. If you subtract anything from that, you open yourself up to all kinds of mistakes. How about a division? Division? Um, you divide your loyalties or allegiances. John mentions um, Antichrist again, and I think I said this before. John's the only person in the whole Bible that uses the word Antichrist. Well, he uses it in this letter again. Remember what Antichrist is? Against, instead of, in addition to. Those are the three meanings of anti. Well, is there things that you need to add in your repertoire? 
Do you divide your allegiance between Jesus and you need something besides you? So I need Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. No, no, no. Any of that addition, any of that dividing of your loyalty, your allegiance, what you're clinging to and counting on, boy, that's setting you up for all kinds of problems. And lastly, multiplication. So here's one we all struggle in. Multiplying what I have to do or we have to do in order to experience salvation, in order to be accepted by God. Don't we love to add our little input to something, right? Um, You may have heard this before. Do you know when boxed cake mixes first came out, nobody would buy them hardly? And do you know why? Because all you had to do was add water. And people say, they would mess it up. I can't make a cake by just adding water. I've got to put eggs in. I've got to put milk in. I've got to put cream in. I've got to put sugar in. Anyone mess up the cake. So you know what the cake mix manufacturers did? They took out some of those things. So now if you make a cake with a box, you have to put some eggs in. You have to put some milk in. Because if all you had to do was add water, people would throw stuff in anyway. Boy, that's exactly what happens when it comes to salvation, isn't it? Um, I need Jesus plus I need to go to church regularly. I need Jesus, and I need to have faithful devotional times. I need Jesus plus. I have to pray prayers of great repentance and shed tears of repentance and regret. I need Jesus plus. Look, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. They're all good things. But your acceptance with God is based on Jesus plus nothing. We add nothing. We don't add 1%. Don't add 10%. We add 0%. But nothing's the hardest thing to bring, isn't it? The hardest thing to do with that cake mix is just put water in it. And the hardest thing to do with your salvation is just to say, hey, Jesus, it's because of who you are and what you did. I bring nothing to this deal. Uh, Mathematical mistakes. If you keep the four functions in mind, maybe it'll keep us a little bit closer to what the gospel is. Well, let me mention a couple of lessons. Lessons that we actually need. The the first lesson is that problems are persistent. Um, Now, you don't have to embarrass yourself and raise your hand or anything. But do you ever read the Bible and think to yourself, boy, I wish I lived back then. You know, the faith was pure. Churches had no problems. People, Christians lived stellar lives. You haven't read the Bible much, have you? I mean, I like reading the New Testament letters because I learned... Those people are screwed up just like me, and those churches are a mess just like our church. I mean, their problems are persistent. I read an article a few weeks ago that was entitled something like, so was the Apostle John a success or a failure? It's almost heretical for me to say that, right? Well, think about what we know about John's churches from these letters. They had big divisions. People were confused about the truth. They didn't believe what John said. The churches split. People were leaving. There were egos and arrogance and lots of problems underneath the surface in all these churches. It's kind of good to read and say, yeah, problems are persistent. Oh, yeah, fast forward. Remember I told you that John was kind of head leading the churches around Ephesus? Interestingly, In the book of Revelation, 
Jesus dictates a letter to John to send to the church in Ephesus. Now remember, John had pastored, led that church, all those churches, for a long time. And here's what Jesus says. You write to the churches that you oversaw, John, and you tell them they have left their first love. I mean, that must have cut John to the quick, right? I mean, they were the churches he led. And they were the churches that left their first love. Problems are persistent. Um, you know, we're, we all bring our own sinful stuff. We take all this sinful stuff, put it together. We wind up with a big sinful mess. Now, again, we're in process. We're hopefully progressing. And together we're working that problems are persistent. But the good news, bad news of all that is we can be partners. Prudent partners with those that are living and extending the gospel. Now, here's the good news from 2 John. When we support, when we pray for, when we show hospitality to, when we give money to, when we pray for those that are doing ministry, we become their partners. We become patrons to what they're doing. We partic we're participating in what they're doing by our support, by our gifts, by our prayers. We now partner with them. The bad news is, as we support and encourage and financially support and do all those things for people that are extending a false message, we become partners with them. And that's why John writes 2 John. Be careful with whom you partner because you participate with those you partner with. I'm really thankful for those that oversee all the missional initiatives at Calvary Church. You may not realize this, we've got a pretty stringent due diligence vetting process. You know, forms have to be filled out, interviews have to be had, discussions happen, evaluations. I mean, there's a whole vetting process, and that process doesn't end once they come on board. That process is continual because we take our partnership seriously, and we become participants. That's why I sometimes will say to people, you don't have to do all that vetting yourself. I mean, if you want, I hope if you give other financial gifts, I hope you do, but any gift you give to Calvary, as Calvary gives to our missionaries, right? 30-some missionaries, 25 mission organizations. All those organizations, all those people are people that we're participating with and people that we partner with gratefully and gladly. I want to mention one thing in closing. You know, for the last number of years, we have partnered with Oxford Circle Church and Community Center. And we're doing that again. And many of you have already purchased toys, given gift cards, etc. And we're doing that again this year. I know you've already done a Feed the Hunger, and I know you've done different things, but we now need to kind of step up. And if you go to the website, find out what toys are needed, find out what gifts are needed. We're actually, we still got a couple of weeks. We're running about 15% of what we need to get in. That is a great organization for us to partner with. And one of the things that I like, we are empowering parents because they come and they purchase at very minimal cost the gifts and things that they give. They then give the gifts to their kids rather than have someone else come 
have their kids open a gift that they don't even know anything about. Problems are persistent. Partnerships need to be prudent. I'm thankful at Calvary Church, we not only have some problems, we've got partnerships that we can all be excited about. And God is in the midst of all this, and we can trust him with all that we have and all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the partnerships that we have established, but primarily for the partnership that we have with you. The partnership that you initiated through sending Jesus. The partnership in which we experience and are beneficiaries of all the wonders and glories of heaven. We bring nothing to the table but walk away with everything. Lord, on the basis of that, would you help us to live out the themes of these letters of John and help us to partner after a prudent process so that our influence, our ministry, our impact can go way beyond what we could ever do as individuals. Thanks for that privilege. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.